0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is published or not?
0: There you go, Jan.
1: Oh, damn it.
0: You've got an author here. I really.
1: have got an author. I'm delighted and I really enjoyed this book, so I think we just better to get cracking. Go for it. What makes climate change real? Is it the reports of natural disasters, the numbers of endangered species being lost? or a really good photograph. We travel through the drought in Australia to the disappearing islands of Scotland in Salt and Skin by Eliza Henry-Jones. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what was the photograph that brought your character Luda Mannigan artistic fame? So, Luda Mannigan lived on a farm in
2: regional Australia and she'd always been interested in art and photography and she ended up... Capturing an image of her teenage son, I think he was about 13, 12, 13 at the time, lying on a dried out dam bed that was just cracked, mm. and desolate. And he looked like he was just absolutely grief stricken and struggling. And she captured that image and she sent it out into the media. It was published and it, without his permission. And it became sort of this rallying point mm. for the drought and climate change in Australia.
1: So as a photojournalist and widow, now Luda wants to think about the future and not the past. She and her two teenage children, Darcy and Min, have been invited to Sine, an island in Scotland. But before they put their feet on the ground, what do they witness?
2: So the family are in a small boat being shown around the islands, being shown the places where the cliffs have been eaten away at by the ocean, the places where the beaches are starting to disappear. And they happen to witness a cliff collapse where a young child um, sadly dies. And Luda's reaction to this is to capture an image and once again circulate it into the media.
1: And it does have an enormous media interest. But what is the dilemma of this photograph on the community?
2: The problem is that it understandably sets the community up against the Manigan family. You know, the community, they're angry, they're hurt, they're a bit bewildered by this person that's just kind of shown up and put this incredibly sensitive, um, horrifying, traumatic image of this child that belongs to the islands and belongs to them into the public space. And for Luda, she's always been very focused and very um, blinkered about this is her role to raise awareness around climate change and that that need and that urgency just eclipses everything else. So she's also quite bewildered by their Mm. response
1: Well, Darcy and Min, the the, um, two children, Darcy, 16, has startling beauty and a terrifying vault of a brain. And Min says, everyone has things they're good at. Now, over the two years this book takes, Min finds that she can do something that nobody else seems to be able to do. What's that?
2: So Min, after they're kind of ostracized to an extent by the local community. Min finds solace going out on the boats with a local man called Yuan and she discovers that she can hold her breath for an exceptionally long time and deep dive to the bottom of the ocean. Mm. And, um, I was very inspired by the people that actually do those that deep diving and you know that that line between what
1: should be humanly possible and what they actually do mm. yeah so she she wins a little bit of awe from the community for that or bewilderment luna the mum has a very aged very distant relative on the island cassandra now she's rather revered by the town folk because she knows the history Even the house the Manigans are living in has a story. What's it called by the locals? It's the ghost house.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Going full gothic there.
1: (laughs) Darcy asks Cassandra for the story of the women and I'm going to ask Eliza Henry-James to read just a little bit from her book just about these women that lived in the ghost house and what? why they were there. What story, she
2: asks, her voice quieter. The ones who called in the whales. There are four of them executed for that. One was also charged with summoning storms, another one with promising fruitfulness in nature. And the last two women, Susan and Magdalena, were also charged with raising a procession of the dead. What does that even mean?
1: Yeah, what does that even mean? Not only ghosts, there's this island also allows people to see not inside you but the outside of you and this is from page one from Salt and Skin. It's something rather mystical. A trick of
2: the light or an old curse or a spell that makes the tidal island a particularly curious place. It is said that some folk as soon as they step onto Shawnee can see the luminous traces of scars across human skin. Every injury a person has ever sustained to their flesh, every scratch and pimple and pox and burn illuminated by the pearly light. Someone with the sight can see the scars spun brightly across the skin of their children, strangers, enemies, their own skin too. In this way, all skin is the same on the tidal island, and all skin on the tidal island is utterly unique.
1: hmm And... As well as that, there's the fascinating story of Theophin Muir. He has no scars on his skin. What else makes Theo different?
2: So Theo is probably my favorite character in Sultan's skin and he washed up on the beach on this little tidal island where people can see scars and he had no real recollection of where he's come from and he's got webbing between his fingers so there's a lot of controversy around where he's sort of where where he's <laughs> emerged from and some of the locals think that he might be a selkie or a changeling or a fairy. There are these kind of folkloric elements around where he's come from and he's both embraced by the community but he's also kind of treated a little bit as an outsider, ostracised as well to some degree and has trouble being around the
1: community in some ways. He's around 17 years old now and a guy called Carter, an investigative journalist from London, he wants to write a book about Theo. Theo? And this is where Eliza Henry-Jones has brought in a very interesting aspect of media and the power of stories because there's more than one reason why why Carter wants to write this book. There's more than one reason why, when a Theo was found, it made headlines.
2: One of the reasons Carter is very fixated on this is that when Theo emerged from the ocean onto this beach with no memory and just as a little, as a wildling, um, there had been a spate of other young boys that had disappeared and some of those cases remained unsolved and some of them, I think one or two were were found. Mm. But it was just this inundation of just these missing boys and the grief and the collective trauma of that and then just from the ocean this boy emerged and... It was almost kind of cathartic for the commute, for the for the country, for the globe.
1: Well, and there was also political corruption, mm-hmm. so politicians wanted everybody to look over there. Yes. <laughs> so they inspired a fairy tale story. Theo's found protection and a home with Iris, who shares an understanding and a friendship with Cassandra, but is very different in her beliefs. Iris likes to track down sinners and convert them with the help of Father Lee from the Kirk. But this church also has a connection to the witches.
2: So the church in Salt and Skin is actually based on a real church in Kirkwall on the Orkney Islands. And it's a very old church that I think they began construction on it in 1137, so very, very old. And in Salt and Skin, there is a dungeon, a hole in the wall where they used to keep these mostly women who were accused of witchcraft in the 17th century. And this hole in the wall is carved with protective spells. So all these um, symbols and shapes that are meant to protect and defend against bad spirits. Mm -hmm. And there's a hangman's ladder in the curve. (sighs)
1: Well, just as Iris and Cassandra have a friendship of sorts, so do Min and Darcy with Theo, but in very different ways. With Min, it's running wild and uh, seeing things and just the physicality of all. But with Darcy, what's the friendship with Theo there?
2: There's a real gentleness in the connection between Theo and Darcy. Theo's always had trouble reading, and one of their first encounters... Darcy ends up just reading to Theo in the loft of the ghost house and there's a lot unspoken between Theo and Darcy and uh, the juxtaposition between Darcy growing up with a photographer mother who documented every part of his childhood and put so much into the public space that he didn't want there versus Theo, who knows nothing about his childhood, knows nothing about his family, where he was born, what his experiences were. So just how they find connection through that disparate life experience.
1: Luda, the mother, has to share an office with Tristan. What's he doing on the island?
2: Tristan is on the island, so he's an archaeologist and he has an obsession with the witch marks, so as well as them being in the dungeon, in the kirk, these protective spells, they are in huge numbers on the walls of the ghost house and nobody really knows what they, who put them there or what their exact purpose is, but he's obsessed. And he balances that obsession with doing kind of day-to-day mundane council work, so going out and surveying before people renovate Mm. or just checking to make sure all the boxes are ticked. He
1: was a very fun character. I thought you enjoyed him. He was – even his conversations were good fun. But, you know, this is where it's such a weird thing that all the people – can be seen with marks on their skin by by some others. And all the buildings have got these marks on them. Even Min asked Darcy, if they're there to ward off evil, what did those people think that they needed so much protection from? Well, you know, we, we talk about Tristan being a very gentle chap who... His friendship with Luda also spills over to Darcy and Min and they have a lot of really good discussions. In contrast to Tristan, what happens to Luda when she goes to the home of the parents of the dead girl she photographed?
2: Luda is very resistant to going out to see the family initially because she doesn't think that she's done anything wrong. She doesn't want to address the fact that she's caused pain and damage and when she finally does go out to apologise she ends up being choked and kicked by
1: the
2: dad of the child that died
1: and Luda is 5 foot 5 skinny woman but Father Lee says he was within his rights to protect his family he's grieving and he was provoked in Studying the Witches, Luda says, women are bound up in the very bones of this place and part four of this book is only three pages long with such a dramatic twist. A quote, shocking them all into something new. How difficult was that to plot? Oh I liked you reading that line. <laughs>
2: um, actually, the ending was probably the easiest bit for me because I initially wrote this book in poetry form in the notes app on my phone when my son was very young. And the ending, so that that last kind of very dramatic part of the book is almost word for word the poem that I wrote in my notes app.
1: Well, through the book you use a repetition of language. The keening, the keening, the keening. We're safe, we're safe, we're safe. Not real, not real, not real. So now I understand why you actually put that poetic writing in. There are many characters like Evan that we haven't had mentioned and a lot of plot deviations like Garbage Girl we haven't gone into. So the book, The Past of Witches and the Present of beached Whales, Male Violence and Grief, affect all those on a Scottish island in Eliza Henry-Jones' Salt and Skin. Thank you, Eliza.
2: Thank you so much. Thank
0: you, Jan.
1: You're
2: listening to 855 AM...
0: And now here's my interview with Paul Daly on his novel, Jesus Town. Indigenous reconciliation and a true acknowledgement of our past as a nation are currently abiding concerns that Australia needs to address. Paul Daly, in his novel, Jesus Town, provides us perhaps with a window into what this entails. So, Paul, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Your story encompasses virtually four generations and each... Generation represents a different attitude towards the Indigenous peoples and culture. Let's start with Patrick Renmark, a storyist. Yes, well, Patrick is um, an academic historian,
3: a former journalist, but he's kind of seen the writing on the wall or on the bookshelves at the airport bookshop. He's seen that the stories about Australia's past that seem to sell by blokes. Largely about blokes with guns, a mono-dimensional take into straight into the militaristic view of Australian history based around largely Gallipoli that that you know iconic date, 1915. So Patrick goes there, he abandons the academy in all but name, he's still connected to it. but the academy, because of privatization, pressures, all
0: that sort of stuff, actually continues to embrace him because he sells books. But also that attitude is representative of how we look at things today, very casual, I wouldn't say necessarily glib, but it's an overview without a deep understanding.
3: It, it is an overview without a deep understanding, and it's, and it's a very white view of nationhood too. It's a it's a view that doesn't really take in that 60, 80, 100,000 years of rich Indigenous antiquity and civilization.
0: And Patrick is also a broken man.
3: He's a very broken man. He's um, largely a victim of his own hubris, but also uh, he has had what many would call a tragedy in his life. There has been a death of someone very close to him and his marriage is broken up. Even his, um, his, his quite insightful mistress has decided she's had enough of him too.
0: Now, Patrick comes to Jesus Town, and we'll explain that connection in a minute and what Jesus Town is, to research the work of his grandfather, Nathaniel. Renmark. So, Jesus Town?
3: Jesus Town. Jesus Town, when I decided to write a novel about all of this stuff, and bear in mind I never quite knew where it was going to go, I needed a name that evoked an old mission town. And I'd read about a lot of places, and in fact I'd visited a few, and one of the ones I visited had uh, the remnants of a big white stone cross there. And I just thought, what am I going to call this place? Jesus Town. So the title happened, and I think it, it's quite evocative and simple.
0: But it also represents the attitude of early European settlement of mm. bringing Christianity and God to the indigenous peoples.
3: Absolutely, David. The imposition of it. Um, we are going to rename this place, and it would have had a name before, uh, like the whole whole continent was named. You know, James Cook started renaming it from the deck of Endeavour in in 1770. So Jesus Town was imposed on. Over the indigenous place.
0: But Nathaniel, in attempting to help the people of Jesus Town, he is in many ways a self-taught anthropologist, an iconoclast, trying to break down those attitudes, but he's a compromised man as well. He is a compromised man because he's part of a cohort
3: that were around in the early to um, mid-20th century uh, of professional and autodidact researchers, adventurers, anthropologists who believed that they were witnessing the vanishment of the race, if you like, quite fallaciously, as we know, because survival is amazing. But their view was that they had to hoard, they had to collect everything they could materially, by which I mean uh, material culture, spears, art, artifacts, but also, really disturbingly, many, many, many thousands of sets of human remains. And Rennie Nathaniel was, was part of that race.
0: But Nathaniel is working with an anthropological team from America and such like, academics who think they're doing the right thing by taking these bones and taking them to museums where teaching the rest of the world.
3: So it's a little bit ambiguous. I mean, the best intentions can lead to terrible outcomes, as as we know. And, you know, despite the altruism of some the uh, consequences were pretty bad in in some circumstances. So I think the motives of some of those on that anthropological mission were mixed. Rennie's motivation, if you like, was really to get credit for all he knew while at the same time trying to say to the world these people should be protected. But in so doing, maybe he compromised them.
0: But in some ways, doesn't that represent our attitude even today where they're trying to do the best thing or the European mindset and framework and attitude, let's do the right thing, and yet it still is not dealing with the issues at hand, the people in question.
3: I think that's a really good point when it comes to self-determination, David. I think this has never been more evident than in the many, many, many varying and mostly really poor responses to um, the Uluru Statement from the heart. You know, when that first came out of uluru the government response was basically tell them they're dreaming and in fact i think that great sage of australian national sentiment barnaby joyce might have actually said that so with the uluru statement we're still it's it's still waiting a white political response at every
0: turn you know i love the word dreaming because it can be applied in <laughs> yeah. different ways there but this leads to a whole range of issues we've got basically patrick and nathaniel different generations but they almost parallel each other in their attempt to overcome regret and the loss both of them have occurred and both in many ways come back to country which ties them to the indigenous it's
3: it's really interesting isn't it because they they're broken men but they're they're from a line of broken men so fatherhood runs in a line you know through four generations of broken men here who and it's a way of telling a very complicated story about um indigeneity and custodianship true custodianship of land but the really interesting thing is that when they both go to Jesus town they are both they both find a sense of safety there from a world that they can't fit into otherwise from a world that they're running from
0: And yet the world, the indigenous world, has a way of embracing and encompassing them simply by the way it looks at things. So in many ways, yes, Patrick and Nathaniel are dealing with loss and regret, but for the Aboriginal community in Jesus Town, their ancestors live in the landscape, live with them, and they have a different way of looking at that.
3: They do. There's this great sort of fusion of layers of, of belief, you know, traditional spirituality, Islam, football, the animals, and the um, the storied landscape, but also Christianity. Um, so it's it's very complex and at once beautifully simple. But it's not monodimensional. And it's interesting when these blokes go there. Really, what I've done, David, is. Australian mythology is full of white saviour tropes. And I've flipped that because only in this black community are these white men safe.
0: Interestingly enough, then, in this notion of how we look at the past, the story of the past, storyist and such like, Australia has adopted, and this is in the first generation you've got in the book, the story of Gallipoli, which we've elevated to iconic status. That's the way in some ways we shape and frame our thinking and yet the Indigenous look at things differently but we all need story.
3: We do all need story but story doesn't have to be compressed and simplified. I mean I think that the really intriguing way about the Indigenous view of past and present is that they fuse. Uh, it's the every when. It's, um, it's this notion of circular time so that the story of the country, the continent, it doesn't begin with white nationhood. It goes back 100,000 years to, and encompasses the experience of everyone who's lived here and the creationist beings as well.
0: And when you look at Australia, that white European settlement, it's only still a very young country in terms of memory and we've got to bring aboard all the other that's out there.
3: Isn't it interesting that national memory is really only going back to 1788 or white national memory? But I guess that's a really interesting thing about Uluru, whether you embrace it or not, is that the call from, for Uluru was to embrace that Indigenous existence, that beautifully complex yet simple antiquity the longest um, surviving civilization in the world on this continent. That is the story. And, you know, we're invited to walk with Indigenous Australians to be part of that. We're part of it too.
0: And it's the Indigenous invitation. Yeah. And it comes through in the novel, this attitude of patience. There's one scene (laughs) where Patrick is working at his desk and Amelia, his sort of auntie, adopted auntie, is sitting there and he's startled by the fact that she's been sitting there for such a long time and she sort of says, I just waited until you turned around. And it's a difference in attitude between the white European success uh, has to have a purpose and a sort of Indigenous attitude. And I'm trying to be very careful about framing the Indigenous into a pigeonhole of patience and a different way of looking at how life pans out.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And there is that sense that time has a different meaning and that things happen when they happen and that you have to believe what you're feeling. This is a thing that comes over again and again. And Amelia says it to Patrick many times and Jericho says it to to him as well. You're having these feelings, you're thinking things, you're seeing things, why don't you believe them?
0: And also then, I mean, Jericho, this is... um there's Tamar and Jericho, both about the same age as Patrick, who are, he met as children when they were children. There, I mean, Jericho's attitude towards white man's rubbish. Hang on a minute, this is not our untidy place. This is your untidy place. You brought the rubbish in.
3: That's right. Uh, again, you like, you imposed the religion. You brought the rubbish and the white man's way of, you know, fast food and and that sort of thing. It's it's interesting though. And I really wanted to make this clear that this coexists with a place in Jesus Town and it surrounds that is very much mired in traditional belief and practice still. There is what white people would call culture happening every day. People are still living semi-traditionally. They're still fishing and hunting. They're creating all the time. They're telling stories. And there's music all the time.
0: And as a final question, I'm very conscious that white European settlement came in imposed a framework of thinking, like religion, and then impose, no, we're taking care of the indigenous, we'll split up families, the stolen generation, because this is the best thing for them in terms of the white framework of thinking. And I'm even our awareness today, how much is it constrained by that same white framework of thinking, which is slowly evolving?
3: I think it's it's very compromised by that white way of thinking and and I think you've only got to look no further than the fact that so-called truth-telling has already happened. We've had royal commissions into deaths in custody. There's been more deaths in custody since then than there was before that I was investigating. There's been uh, inquiries into the stolen generation. Children are still being taken. So really I think this is all being looked at through the white political paradigm and Advancement is really slow. I mean, you know, my attitude to all of this is, you know, as a non-Indigenous person, two ears, one mouth, sit back and listen.
0: And in fact, sit back and read, perhaps, because the listener, the reader can get a copy of Jesus Town by Paul Daly and start to look and question for themselves our past as Australia and our future. So it's an Alan and Unwin release, Jesus Town, Paul Daily. Paul, thank you very much for talking with well, me. Wow, another it's week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.